Well, it is an unexpected pleasure to be back with you. Originally, Emma and I had planned to return to California uh, this past Friday, but an opportunity opened up for us to stay longer, and we could rearrange our flight without any penalty, without any extra cost. So we're here, and we'll be here one more Sunday, and then we'll head back to L.A. So hope that's a pleasure for you, as it is for us, and have enjoyed another, another time of worship with you. And I pray that this time of also looking at the Word together with you will be profitable and enjoyable as well. Let's pray before we turn to God's word. Lord God, as we consider this great, important, sobering topic before us today, I pray, God, that you would work mightily, that you would enable me to speak, that you may enable me to speak accurately, clearly, helpfully, and that you would enable the people to hear, enable us to understand this truth, and apply it. Not become fearful, but become committed to being strong in you. Pray that you would accomplish this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the values that we've inherited in Western culture is the idea of an honorable fight. This idea goes back to at least the Middle Ages and the laws of chivalry for knights and kings. According to the unspoken rules, even if you are engaged in deadly combat with another person, you should show courtesy to your opponent. You don't just sucker punch someone out of nowhere, or you don't stab or shoot him in the back. You let him know that you're going to attack him, so he has a chance at least to turn and defend himself, or surrender. And you don't continue to attack a person or kick a man when he's down. You let him get back up so he has a fighting chance. And if someone wants to surrender or negotiate, then you cease trying to harm your opponent. And you show him true care, even as a prisoner. Now, in our thinking, to disregard these rules is to show yourself to be cruel, cowardly, and base in character. Now, in truth, modern warfare stretches and even ignores many of these unspoken rules, and not all cultures of the world have the same idea as to what constitutes an honorable fight. But there is one enemy for us Christians who continually and completely ignores all rules of war, and that enemy is Satan. Satan has no problem with surprise attacks or ambushes. In fact, he'd prefer to strike and wound without his victims even knowing that he's there. Satan has no problem afflicting those who are already suffering. In fact, Satan would love to drive people into complete ruin, total despair that they might renounce faith in Christ, commit heinous sins, or even kill themselves. Satan also has no problem continuing to assault those who don't fight back and want a truce. People may stop fighting against Satan, but Satan will not stop fighting against them. Now, dear brothers and sisters at Calvary, do you realize this? Do you understand? Do you live in the light of this sobering truth that we have an enemy who is committed to our harm and continually wars against us? I fear that we do not. I fear that we do not realize this truth, or we only realize it in an intellectual sense. Yes, we know that the Bible speaks about spiritual warfare, and 
talks about how demons rage against Christians. But somehow we think that that reality doesn't really apply to us or affect us. Maybe certain members of the church experience significant spiritual warfare, but not us. Maybe the pastor, maybe missionaries, maybe that one person or that one couple who is obviously struggling. Maybe they experience spiritual warfare, but not us. We're okay. After all, we don't want to get all weird when it comes to spirits. I mean, hasn't science and technology freed us from thinking that demons are behind everything? And people in ancient days thought that way. They did see demons seemingly everywhere. You've got a headache, it's a demon. Your house makes weird noises, it's a demon. Or your children won't obey you, they've obviously got demons. Surely we're beyond such superstitions, right? We've learned to be rational. We don't need to talk about malevolent spirits. Meanwhile, we're also aware that what goes on in some sectors of Christianity today When it comes to things spiritual, it's a little out of control. There's speaking gibberish in the spirit. There's falling over, seemingly, from the spirit's power. There's claiming new revelations and prophecies by the spirit. And these are the more tame manifestations. Many churches also speak at length about the activities of demons and how to counteract them. We need to bind Satan, they say. We need to exercise the demons in this person this place, or in this city. So when aware of all this, shouldn't we as conservative evangelicals downplay the demonic so that we don't end up like certain off-course churches? Well, it is true that people in the past and the present have erred, even greatly erred, when it comes to understanding what the Bible has to say about demons and spiritual warfare. We must indeed avoid demonic obsession and other excesses so that we might remain biblical. However, being biblical also means that we cannot go to the other extreme of ignoring Satan and the demons altogether. Because you know what happens when we ignore such an an enemy as Satan. We play right into his hands. And we will be spiritually sucker-punched and end up sprawled on the ground. Indeed, if we do not take Satan and his schemes seriously, we will not prepare for his attacks. And therefore, we will inevitably become his prey. We need to be reminded of what the Bible really says when it comes to spiritual warfare and Satan. So, in this way, we will not be taken taken by surprise or grievously wounded, but we will instead be able to stand against the evil one and help one another to stand. So this morning, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, and that critical passage on spiritual warfare. So please take your Bibles and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, page 1173, if you're using the Pew Bible. Ephesians 6, our main section is verses 10 to 20. As you're turning there, let me remind you of the context of this passage. The Apostle Paul writes the letter of Ephesians during his first period of imprisonment in Rome. Paul writes this letter to a primarily Gentile group of believers 
in and around the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is on the western coast of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. He writes this letter to encourage these relatively new Gentile believers and to remind them that they have received full salvation blessing, a full salvation inheritance alongside their Jewish brethren. All have received the same blessings. But these Gentile believers must also walk worthy of the salvation that they have received by walking in holiness and by walking in the power of God. Really, and many of you know this, the letter of Ephesians essentially divides into two nice little halves, and each half is focused on communicating one of those two main messages. Chapters 1 to 3, you Gentiles have received full salvation blessings in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6, so then walk worthy of the great salvation blessings you have received. It's at the end of this second half of Ephesians, the exhortation and application section of Ephesians, that we encounter our text, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. This is the final exhortation from Paul the prisoner to his Gentile brethren. And it functions as a final charge and summary of many of the letter's truths. Now let's prepare to read just Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. A full section goes all the way to verse 20, but we're only going to look at the opening four verses today, and next week we'll come back and look at the accompanying seven verses should mention that our pastor has gone through this passage before, about four years ago, as he did a verse-by-verse exposition of Ephesians. This, or he took about 12 sermons to go through this whole passage. So if you like, you can access that discussion via our sermon recordings at the website, calvaryem.org. But as I say, we do need to be reminded of this text, and I trust that our briefer look, just two weeks, will be profitable for doing so. So, let's now look at Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, and hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. We see in these four verses one main command and then three reasons to obey that command. And that essentially is going to form the outline of this sermon today. The main command appears in verse 10. Finally, look at the verse again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The word finally reveals that we have indeed come to that last section of exhortation in Paul's letter. Being the final command, it has extra emphasis, extra importance. We must pay special attention to it. But what's the important command? It is be strong. Or, could also translate it, become strong. Now, when the world thinks about becoming strong, they're usually thinking in terms of physical strength or willpower. But this is not Paul's sense, because notice he says, be strong in the Lord. Now, the Lord here is a title for Jesus Christ, as it is throughout the whole letter of Ephesians. Jesus is the Lord, the master, the ruler. 
And for those who have been bought by and belong to the Lord, that is, believers, Christ's slaves, they are to be strong in their Lord. Now, verse 10 also says, and in the strength of his might. The phrase, the strength of his might, could be either descriptive of quality, that is, his mighty strength, that would be the way to understand it, be strong in his mighty strength, or the phrase could be description of origin, uh, that is to say, be strong in the strength that belongs to and comes from Christ. Now, both of those things are true theologically, but the former, I would say, is probably Paul's intent here, since he does use the same phrase in chapter 1, and there's not a strong emphasis there in the context on source. So I would say the idea is, be strong in his mighty strength. But are we talking about two separate concepts here? On the one hand, we should be strong in the Lord, and in the other hand, we should be strong in his mighty strength? Well, no, these two items can't be separated. They're just two ways of saying the same thing. We should understand the whole sentence in this way. Be strong in the Lord, that is, be strong in his mighty strength. Now, by writing the sentence this way, Paul keeps the command tied to a person, the Lord Jesus, but he also emphasizes that person's great strength. As we seek the Lord's great strength, we are to be seeking the Lord himself. Now, does Jesus truly have power and mighty strength? Well, absolutely. He is the Lord. He is God. In fact, Paul has been drawing attention to the power of God throughout the book of Ephesians. Consider the prayer that Paul mentions for the Ephesian believers in chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. You can turn back there since it's not too far away. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Listen to what Paul says he prays on behalf of the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 18 and following. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So notice what Paul says in this earlier section about the power of God. He says that God exercises a power of surpassing greatness toward believers. This power was even displayed in Christ's resurrection his ascension, and his exaltation. Christ himself is now far above every other ruler and power, whether human, whether angelic, whether demonic. He is far above them all. He has total authority. All things are put under his feet. That's a Lord, right? There are many people, many beings that look like they have power, but here is a ruler with true power. Our Lord Christ has the unlimited power of God because he is God. But do we know this power? Paul prays that we believers would know it and know it better. 
And not only that, look at another prayer that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, we hear this prayer from Paul. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice here in this second prayer, Paul's desire is not simply that believers would know God's power, but that they would actually be strengthened by it. And how? Verse 16 says, through his spirit in the inner man. Notice that verse 20, in verse 20, Paul further comments that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we even ask or think. And this is according to the very same power that works within us, the saints of God. In other words, that same amazing, unfathomable power of God that causes God to even do the impossible, that's the same power at work in believers. And how did this power first come into us? How did we first obtain this great, able to do the impossible power? Well, it came into us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we repented and believed, God's Spirit came into us. The Spirit of Christ. And because the Spirit is God and has all the power of God, we now have the unlimited power of God at work within us. And that's good news, right? Considering what we face in life and what we face in ourselves, that's a great comfort to have even the power to do the impossible through God in us. Now, despite our receiving God's power, the manifestation of this power is not automatic. Because, let's return to Ephesians 6.10. In Ephesians 6.10, notice, we are commanded to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. Now, if Paul has to give such command, then it's possible for the command to be disobeyed, right? It's possible for even Christians not to be strong in the Lord. You see, even if you have God's Spirit within you, you will not see the Spirit's power manifest in your life unless you actually cooperate with God's Spirit and seek the Lord's strength. That's the way God's designed it. In other words, if you want the Lord's mighty strength, you cannot be passive about it. You must actually obey the command here. Be strong in the Lord. Now, the question that naturally arises is, well, how do I become strong in the Lord? How might I be strong in the Lord? Well, if the strength you need is not your own, but comes from God, there can only be one way to access it, and that is by faith. Brethren, hear this. If you wish to be strong in the Lord, then you must exercise 
humble faith in your Lord and in his power. You must believe the Lord with that kind of true faith that causes you to act in expectant obedience before the Lord. That is, an obedience that expects God to be true to himself and to his promises. To have such faith is what it means to be strong in the Lord. In a way, you could say, your faith in God is your strength. But not because your faith itself is powerful. Rather, because the God in whom you have faith is powerful. God so chooses to show forth his power in your life as you express faith in him. And did not Jesus say in Matthew 17, 20, Matthew 17, 20, Truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now that's power. Now understand, this is not faith to have God to do anything we want. No, this is faith to have God to do anything that he wants through us and in us, especially power to overcome sin and walk in holiness. That's what God wants. Now, hasn't faith always been the way that God's people have become strong in him? We don't have time, but we could go to Hebrews 11, that famous hall of faith. And what is it except a chronicle of how God's people manifested God's power as they had faith in him? Go to Abraham, go to Moses, go to David, go to many others. They overcame great obstacles. They endured impossible situations because they had faith. It was that faith in God that made them strong. That's the kind of faith Paul's talking about. That's the kind of faith we need. Now, this faith requires humility. And that makes sense, right? To admit that you do not have power in yourself to overcome your enemies and your obstacles and to seek the power of someone greater, that's naturally humbling. Further, to admit that from your perspective, a task seems impossible, but to disregard that and to trust God in what he says, despite what you see, that too is humbling. That too requires humility. But as we already saw from James last week, James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will do what? He will exalt you. When we exercise humble faith, that's when we see the Lord's power on display. If you will believe God above your own wisdom, your own experience, your own power, then you will see him do even the impossible in your life. And he will grant you victory. In fact, the more we understand the full extent of our weakness, the greater opportunity we have to manifest faith and become strong in Christ. You, knew who understood, you know who understood this really well? Paul. Because he says himself in 2 Corinthians 12.10, in remarking about the thorn in the flesh given to him or allowed to be given to him by God, he says, 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. When God lays me low, when he shows me I have no power in myself, that's when I can actually trust him. That's when his power is going to be put on display in my life. So this is Paul's great last exhortation in Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord. To obey any of the previous commands or exhortations he gave in Ephesians 4 to 6, that will require the Lord's strength. But this strength can only be accessed by faith. So what about you? Are you strong in the Lord? Are you becoming strong in the Lord by faith? Not in your strength, but in His? Do you recognize that the Lord's mighty strength is greater than any other power? Any other power in the universe, even your fleshly desires, your sins, your temptations. His power is greater than all of that and able to give you the victory. Do you realize that there is no temptation that cannot be overcome by Christ's power? You are never without a promise of deliverance if you will believe. Now this command to be strong in the Lord is not merely a summary command for this letter. Paul tells us next why this command to be strong in the Lord is so critical to be obeyed. What now appears in the text are three reasons to obey this command. And that's what's going to appear next in the outline. I'll come back to that note on put on the armor. Here are three reasons from Paul why you believers, the Ephesians first, but it applies to us too. You at Calvary must become strong by faith in the Lord. Reason number one, we see this in verse 11, to overcome, I'll put it up there as we go through each one. Reason number one, to overcome Satan's many schemes. And we see that in verse 11. Reason number two, to prevail in our supernatural struggle. We see that in verse 12. And reason number three, to keep standing in the evil day. We see that in verse 13. Now, these reasons overlap a little bit. They sound maybe a little similar to one another, but each has its own nuance. And we'll see that as we look through each one. Let's take a look at the first reason that appears in verse 11. Why you today must become strong in the Lord by faith. Reason number one, look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So our first reason to become strong by faith in the Lord is to overcome Satan's many schemes. Now, I need to explain something briefly. This verse begins, as does verse 13, with another command to put on the full armor of God. Now, this term full armor comes from the Greek panoplia, from which we get the word panoply. And it refers to the complete equipment of a heavily armed soldier. So not just the armor that he wears, but also the weaponry that he uses. We're commanded to take up this full equipment of God. Now that phrase of God, what does that mean? That's just the idea that this armor comes from and is supplied by God. Now this other command, is this a different command than the one we just mentioned, be strong in the Lord? Well, kind of, not really. Becoming strong in the Lord means really, more specifically, 
putting on the armor supplied by God. Well, that's metaphorical. If we break down that metaphor, it basically means this. Faith in God, which is what it means to be strong in the Lord, it will manifest itself in certain commitments and acts of obedience in the believer. That is what Paul calls the armor of God. So it's sort of different than the first command, but in another way it's not. It's just a, a more specific explanation of what it means to be strong in the Lord. These commitments, these acts of obedience, they are described figuratively as armor because such will actually protect believers in the same way that military equipment protects a soldier and enables him to stand. Now, Paul's going to describe this armor more specifically in verses 15 to 17. We're not there just yet, so we're not going to say much more about the armor right now. But do notice two things. Notice that this is a full set of equipment, the full armor of God. Nothing is left out, and nothing is unnecessarily included. We need it all. All pieces are essential. All pieces must be utilized. Notice also that this armor means that we are engaged in a conflict. You need armor for war. You need armor for battle. If, we're, if we've got to wear armor, that means that that's what we're in. We are in an intense conflict, according to Paul, that requires nothing less than the panoplia, that full armor set, that full equipment set from God himself. So why do we need this? Why must we become strong in the Lord and put on God's armor? Returning to the main idea of verse 11, our, our first reason, he says at the end of the verse, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, the devil is one of the titles of Satan. Now, I say Satan. Satan comes from the Hebrew, Satanah, which means enemy or adversary or opponent. Devil comes from the Greek, diabolos, and that means slanderer or even accuser. Already in this verse, we see why divine strength and armor are important. We have a slandering enemy who is scheming against us, and we need to stand firm against that, enemy, against that enemy. Stand firm is a defensive term, indicating we are not tasked with destroying, binding, or wounding the devil, but resisting his attacks. We are not to be moved by the devil's assaults. We are to stand up against him. We are to hold our ground. We are to successfully fend off his attacks and advances. I should mention here that the Greek preposition translated against in this verse and in the next verse, very interesting. Whenever it's used of an adversary, it always indicates a face-to-face -face confrontation. And that's significant because that means that these are not indirect attacks from the devil that we're dealing with, not just general blanket attacks. These are up-close and personal strikes. These are projectiles launched at point-blank range. Now, what kind of attacks does the devil use against believers? Notice here that Satan's attacks are described as schemes. So even though it's face-to-face, -face, we're not talking about obvious frontal assaults here. We're talking stratagems. Tricks, traps, ambushes, what we could even call guerrilla warfare. That's the way Satan operates. And notice the word here is not scheme, but schemes, plural. Satan just doesn't just have one angle of attack. He has many, 
He has many schemes, many tricks, many methods specifically designed to entrap each person. So brothers and sisters, are you realizing that we have a very crafty and committed enemy in the devil? Certainly such a dangerous opponent necessitates the Lord's strength and the Lord's armor. Does he not? What exactly does the devil do? Let's get more specific. What typifies the devil's schemes? Well, let's just get out of the way. We're not talking about demonic possession. We do see demonic possession in the Bible, but only of unbelievers. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul says that unbelievers are under the power of the devil because he is their ruler. Therefore, an unbeliever has no real ability to resist any of the orders of Satan. Though God may intervene, God is not obligated to. They are under Satan's dominion. But believers are no longer that way. They've been set free from Satan's rule. They've been set free from slavery to sin. They've become slaves of Christ and slaves of righteousness, as Romans 6.22 says. Believers are guarded by God's Holy Spirit. No other spirit may enter. And no one and nothing can separate a believer from Christ or from Christ's love. And praise God for that truth. So we're not talking about possession, but that doesn't mean that believers are immune to the devil. Or else there'd be no reason for this verse in Ephesians 6.11. Really, the way that the devil tries to get at believers has everything to do with the title he's given in this verse. He's the slanderer. And what does it mean to slander? But to lie. To misrepresent the truth. And that is Satan's primary weapon against believers. He lies. He gives lies. He speaks half-truths. He presents truth out of context so that we misunderstand it. And he takes the truth and misapplies it. That's what he does to believers. Consider what Jesus says about the devil in John 8.44. John 8.44, Jesus is speaking about the devil and those that belong to him. And, and Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying, deceit, those things are central to the devil's character. And what does he hope to accomplish with these lies? He wants to destroy people. Jesus calls him a murderer in John 8, 44. And that is what he is indeed. He hates Christ. He hates those that belong to Christ. He wants to ruin them. He wants to entrap them in sin. He wants them to blaspheme their Lord. He wants to destroy their witness. And he wants them even to die. That's Satan's desire. Consider Satan's handiwork. We don't even need to go very far in the Bible to see how destructive and how powerful the lies of Satan can be. Consider Genesis 3. I'll just summarize it. You don't need to turn there. But what did Satan do to Eve? He spoke lies to her. Satan questioned the truthfulness and rightfulness of God's word. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree you want? Satan flatly contradicted God's promise of punishment for sin. You will not surely die. And Satan slandered God's goodness. 
God doesn't want you to have this fruit because he's a jealous miser. He's holding back what's really good for you. You should take it yourself. These were all lies, slander, misrepresentations. But they charmed Eve and they led to the ruin of the entire human race. And Satan is telling the same kind of lies today to people, even believers. With such lies, Satan stirs up the flesh, flatters our pride, and presents various idols to us in such a way as to make them seem so necessary and so pleasant. But how does Satan actually communicate these lies to believers? The Bible is not entirely explicit, but I think we can say a few ways. Again, it's, it's not that, or actually I should say not again, but if we just consider Genesis chapter 3, does Satan speak to us visibly and audibly as he did to Eve? Does he appear and speak to us? Well, no, that's not the New Testament pictures of, that's not the New Testament's description or picture of Satan's work. Satan has other ways of getting to us, though. He can't possess us. He can't get inside our heads, but he can whisper, as it were, a thought to our hearts. So subtly, as if the thought were completely natural, even one of our own. Just a little whisper. Satan might also move one of his minions, one of his slaves, one of those under his rule, to place a stumbling block in our path, maybe with something they say or something they do, because he knows that's going to get us, or that might incite us. Or Satan, we certainly know he does this, he indirectly works his evil world system to create an environment that is most conducive to ensnare believers and keep his own people under bondage. But regardless of the source or means of the devil's communication, his purpose is the same, to discourage believers from following God and to tempt them towards sin with various lies. He is the tempter, and he cannot help but lie. And a lie does not have to be plausible to be effective. It doesn't have to, you don't have to analyze and be like, you know what, that really is believable. As someone once remarked very insightfully, and you've probably heard me say this before in Sunday school, the power of a lie is not in its believability, but in its attractiveness. If you really want it to be true, you'll believe it. Now, brothers and sisters, have you experienced this? Have you encountered seductive lies in your heart, in conversation, and in the world at large? My brothers and sisters, that is Satan's work. Such is Satan's work. This is why we must become strong in the Lord and put on God's armor. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Therefore, we must prepare. We must fight. We must have faith in our Lord. Now, two quick asides before I go further. just want to emphasize that Satan is not an evil version of God. That is, Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, nor is he omnipotent. He doesn't know everything, he can't see into our minds, and he can't be everywhere at once. Now, he does have many demons who serve under him and serve with him, and he is very crafty and observant. After all, he's been around for a pretty long time. He is indeed a foe to be taken seriously. But, 
For God's obedient people, for those who have faith, he is not truly to be feared. As we've already heard last week from James, we have a promise from God that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. He will be forced to. As powerful as he is, as seductive as his lies could be, he is not truly to be feared for those who walk with the Lord. So that's one caveat. Another caveat is, not every temptation comes from Satan. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Just as God's acts are invisible and mysterious, and even though you know God is at work, it's hard to say exactly what God's doing at a particular time, so it is with evil in the world. We cannot ever with surety say, hey, this particular thought or temptation I just experienced, that was from the devil. It could be, but it just might as easily have been you were being drawn away by your own wicked flesh. Or you were being drawn away by someone else who was submitting to his own wicked flesh. There is more than one source of temptation. Certainly, Satan works with our flesh against us. But we cannot with certainty ever say that a devil or a demon is doing this particular thing or that particular thing. All we know is the kind of things that he does. So therefore, if we experience something... um, a difficult temptation or something like that, we ought to say something more like, this may have been the devil's work. Or, let me deal with this temptation quickly, lest the devil use it against me. Now, with those caveats aside, let's continue. We see that we first must become strong in the Lord in order, what's the first reason? In order to overcome Satan's many schemes against us. But a second reason appears in verse 12. So look at verse 12 now. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. What's the second reason to become strong in the Lord? To prevail in our supernatural struggle. Notice that this verse begins with a clarification of what Paul just said. Our standing against Satan is related to a larger struggle that we are involved in. And notice that beginning phrase, for our struggle. We could translate it more literally from the Greek, not as smooth in English, but more literally, because for us, the struggle. Now this more literal rendering helps us see how exceptional the Christian's struggle is. Paul essentially is saying, other people may struggle against mere flesh and blood, but not us. For us, The struggle is different. The Greek word translated struggle here is interesting because it's normally a term used to describe wrestling. And so as with the prepositions above that describe a face-to-face encounter, Paul is describing spiritual warfare very much as a close quarters conflict. We are practically grappling hand-to-hand with the enemy. He's not some far away foe. He's up close and personal. But notice, our enemy is not flesh and blood. And that, of course, that's a figure of speech denoting humanity. Our enemy is not other people. Yes, people are involved in our struggle, but they're not the ultimate enemies. The struggle is not ultimately against them. So we cannot get sidetracked by struggling against people. We have a much more serious group of enemies with which we must contend. Now, what is this group? What is the ultimate struggle for believers? Paul identifies that it is against four groups. 
But these descriptions are really four ways of describing the same group of enemies. You notice, though, as we talk about each one, the descriptions become more and more intense. First, Paul says, our struggle is against the rulers. Now, this term identifies those with power. Uh, those who have obtained rule for themselves by their great power. But we're not talking about human leaders. That instantly would be like, yeah, those bad leaders we have. No, he said our struggle is not against flesh and blood. These are different rulers. Not human rulers, but supernatural rulers. Demonic rulers. Those spirits who exercise power with and under Satan. This shouldn't surprise us too much. After all, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air, even in this book. He's described as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And though God has never abdicated his rule over the earth, he has allowed Satan to usurp some authority and exercise power over the evil world system. And Satan, for his part, he shares his rule with the demons. Against these rulers, Paul says, we struggle. We grapple. Not just the powers, but the next term, are uh, not just against the rulers, the next term, against the powers. Somewhat unintuitively, this term connotes the idea of authority. If rulers connotes the idea of power, this second term connotes the idea of authority. These are people, beings, who have seized authority for themselves to rule. So, understand, these are no bimbos that we're struggling against. These are evil spirits with great power and great authority. And the third description kicks it up a notch. We struggle against the world forces of this darkness. World forces can also be translated world rulers. These are not mere local lords. They rule the world. They are cosmic potentates, fallen angels who exercise rule over this dark world. And then there's one more description. The fourth and final description, we struggle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Or we could translate this phrase, or that we could translate the phrase this way, against the wicked spirits in the heavenly places. You see, these demonic powers that we wrestle with and against, their dominion extends even into heavenly realms. Now, that makes us pause. Wait a second. You mean there are demons in heaven? Well, Satan had no trouble in the book of Job traveling to and through heaven. But that's it's not necessary that the phrase refers to heaven itself, the dwelling place of God. That they exercise rule in heavenly realms does not necessarily mean God's dwelling place, but those other planes of existence that are beyond our world. There are other realms beyond this earth. The demons reside and even exercise power even in those realms. And from these areas, over all their dominion, these rulers, these powers, these authorities, they have the same desires as their ringleader to kill, to steal, destroy, deceive, and to speak lies. Now, Calvary. Are you hearing what God's word says? It is actually against these great beings we contend in spiritual warfare. Have you thought about that before? Really? We need to wake up and smell the hash browns. 
This is the reality of our struggle. I jest a little bit, but this is serious, right? We are up against the mighty demonic rulers who even reside in heavenly places, who have power over this whole world of darkness. Those are our enemies. Can you see why we need the Lord's strength and the Lord's armor? Now again, with God on our side and his panoply about us, we need not fear even these great demonic rulers. If God is for us, who can be against us? Greater is he who is with us than he who is in the world. But we must take these foes seriously and respond appropriately. So, Calvary, what about you? Do you recognize what your true conflict is and who your enemies really are? Have you gotten sidetracked, totally ignoring this conflict or engaging in conflicts of really no consequence, struggling merely against flesh and blood? In the face of this struggle, do you run to be strong in your Lord and to put on his armor? This is the second reason we must become strong in the Lord, to prevail in our supernatural struggle. That is our struggle. That is our primary conflict. But there is a third reason. A third reason that Paul gives us to become strong in verse 13. Look at verse 13 now. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So the third reason we must become strong by faith in the Lord Christ is to keep standing in the evil day. Notice how similar this verse is to verse 11. Not only is there the repetition of the command to take up the full equipment from God, but also there's the reappearance of very defensive-minded terms. Resist. Stand firm. This makes sense, right? Now that we see what we're up against, we clearly must take up the armor of God if we're going to resist, if we're going to hold the line, if we're going to successfully repulse the enemy. But notice the phrase, in the evil day. What does that mean? Well, evil day indicates a time of special trouble or wickedness. We actually see a similar phrase earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.16, where Paul exhorts that believers are to make the most of their time because the days are evil. The sense in Ephesians 4.16 of evil days is the evil age in which we live. It is a time of trouble. It is a time of prevailing wickedness. It is a time of many temptations and Believers have to, have to walk circumspectly and use their time wisely. But the sense in Ephesians 6.13, our text before us, is similar but a little different because notice the term here is singular rather than plural. It is the evil day. This singularity suggests that with this phrase, Paul doesn't just have in mind the evil age in which we live, but particular periods of trouble or temptation, times even a particular day where resistance against dark forces is particularly critical and particularly difficult. Experientially, I think we've all lived through those kind of days, right? Though we are continually subject to various trials and temptations in this world, there are some times that are particularly tough, days where we feel especially hard-pressed, vulnerable to worry, anger, lust, or whatever it might be. 
Paul's drawing attention to those days. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to become strong in the Lord, not only to stand against the general tide of uh, attacks and temptations, but also for the days, the evil day, where the battle is especially fierce and prolonged. For such days, our goal must be, as the rest of this verse describes, notice it says, having done everything. Now, there are some different interpretations as to what this means. The best, probably, understanding of this phrase is, having done everything you can to persevere, to fight, and to overcome your enemy. You see, when the evil day comes, our plan is not merely to begin resisting. Rather, we continue. We fight tooth and nail by faith in the Lord against temptation, against discouragement. We stand as long as it takes against however many temptations so that in the end, when the dust settles, the day ends, and the battlefield grows grows quiet, where do we want to be? Not picking ourselves up off the ground, not slinking back onto the field after we've run away, but where? Still on the battle line and still holding fast. That's what we want, right? That's what we want in the evil day. We want to be able to stand. We want to be able to last. We want to be able to hold until the end. But we can only do this if we become strong in the Lord. We must become strong in the Lord so that even in the evil day, when the devil has done his very worst to us, we might endure and still keep standing. Now why? For our own glory so we can get a nice pat on the back from others? No. But so that we might please our Lord. We might receive his commendation. And so we might not lose any of the enjoyment of our salvation blessings that have been given us through Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that we've not always done this. You, me, we've even many times failed to keep resisting in the evil day. But brothers and sisters, there's there's still hope for us. It was never our record of righteousness that made us acceptable to God. Not before we're saved, not after we're saved. It's all Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But nevertheless, we cannot stay where we were. Just as Paul urges in Philippians 3, let us press on, forgetting what's behind, forgetting where we may have failed in the past. Let us press on for the prize of the upward call in Christ. Let us believe and act on that promise given also by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.13. You know that verse probably. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You know, when it comes to endurance and spiritual warfare, I sometimes think of the order that was given to allied paratroopers and glider troopers during the D-Day invasion. Many of these different groups of soldiers were tasked with landing and taking bridges from Nazi forces to prevent the arrival of German reinforcements. And so after taking these designated bridges, the soldiers had only one order. Hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. This is the same order given to God's people 
in the evil day. Hold until relieved. Your time of testing, this particularly difficult time of testing, will not last forever. Maybe it will be for a few hours. Maybe it'll be for a whole day. Maybe it will be longer, but it won't be forever. And God is faithful. He will make you able to stand as long as it takes if you exercise faith in Him and make use of the Lord's overwhelming power and impervious armor. That's how the Lord glorifies Himself, isn't it? Even in the face of an overwhelming assault, my saint, my child, he will stand firm. Now, if you give way a little bit in the face of the devil's attack, if he gains an advantage against you, don't give up. Return. Return once more into the breach. Fight on for Christ's sake. It might be more difficult at that point, but even then God is with you. Even then, God will make you able to stand and endure. So, dear people of Calvary, how do you prepare for and react to the evil day? Are you even aware that particularly evil days will come into your life? Do you prepare for the day of testing? Do you roll over in the evil day? Do you think token resistance will be good enough? Ah, just repent later. Or is your heart set like Paul's was, determined to endure to the end for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, for our own soul's sake? Not to mention the church's sake. So hopefully we can see by now that we indeed must be strong in our Lord Jesus Christ. To be strong in Christ means to have faith in him. That kind of faith that produces expected obedience. Paul gave us three reasons in our text why we must become strong in faith in the Lord. Number one, to overcome Satan's many schemes. Number two, to prevail in our supernatural struggle. And number three, to keep standing in the evil day. This is God's word to you this morning. So how will you respond? In light of these truths, will you take your spiritual warfare seriously? Will you humble yourself before your Lord Christ so that his mighty power might be manifest in you? Will you be an overcomer for the Lord's sake and for your own? Will you encourage and help your brethren who are together in the same fight as you? Don't just say, yeah, I can resist. Oh, poor guy over there. He can't do it. Help him. You're part of the same army. You're part of the same struggle. This is why we need each other. Will you encourage your brethren? Will you pray? Will you learn more about Christ and his mighty strength so that you can believe him better and more? Or will you continue to ignore this war and all your powerful spiritual enemies and allow Satan to thresh you like wheat, as he did Peter? Remember, Peter was overconfident. We can be the same way. Now, to any here who have not yet repented and turned to Christ in faith as Savior and Lord, let me warn you based on what we've read in this passage and from the rest of Ephesians, you have no real capacity for spiritual warfare. You cannot be strong in the Lord because Jesus is not your Lord. You yourself are still at war with your Creator and your God. My friend, I urge you not to remain as you are because if you do, 
you are so vulnerable. You have no defense against the demons. You have no defense against your wicked flesh. It's only God's undeserved mercy and kindness that thus far has prevented your full ruin and destruction. He's not obligated to do that anymore for you, and he could leave you alone at any time. That would be just. But what should you do? Well, repent. Repent while you still can. Be rescued from the domain of darkness today and receive the strength of the Lord God. Turn to God now through his son, Jesus Christ, so that you might be freed from your bondage to Satan, to sin, to the various lusts of your flesh. You will be rescued, made a son of God, protected from the wrath of God, secure in God forever. If you have a question about what we've talked about today or want to know more, please talk to me afterwards or talk to one of the elders or deacons. Now then, the thought we should have at the end of the instruction is this. I want to be strong in the Lord, but how do I put on the Lord's armor? What does that look like? That's where we go next in the text. We'll talk about that next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you have made us aware of a great struggle that we are involved in. A struggle against foes that are more powerful than we could have imagined. Yet God, they are nothing to you. Oh Lord, if we believe you, even these foes will have to flee with their tails between their legs. Oh God, but only you can make us able to stand. Lord, let us be humble so that we can actually believe you and experience your delivering power. We pray, God, that you'd protect this church, deliver this church, help each one of us to be overcomers in spiritual battle, and help us to help one another in this common struggle so we might glorify your name, make your name known to the world, see others saved, and experience the blessings of your salvation together. In Jesus' name, amen.